Thank you for listening to Sermons from Stonehouse Church. Our current series is called Reshaped. Reshaped is a 13-week series walking through the book of Ephesians. great to be together. Um, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6 this morning, wrapping up this wonderful letter of Ephesians. And it's a privilege to be here. My family's here, Valerie, my wife, my son Schaefer, and my son Jude. They're all here as well. So let's open with some prayer. Father, thank you for gathering us. Thank you for the privilege it is to open your word together. Father, we ask that you would speak by the power of your Holy Spirit and that we would hear and that we wouldn't only be hearers, but that we would be doers, that we would respond, and that we'd learn how to apply gospel truths to our lives. Help us to listen as if our lives depended on it. Help us to lean in and to worship you the way we engage Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I love epic battle scenes in movies and epic battle scene speeches. Uh, recently, we just rewatched the uh, Return of the King, and uh, I, don't, I forget the, the king who was rallying his troops uh, for that massive battle, but he was riding his horse, and he was hitting their spears, and he was yelling, and he was, he was getting them all charged up. This was an epic battle, and it was an epic battle scene speech that he was giving, and so the king rallies his people together, and he doesn't just say, hey, thanks for coming out. You know the drill, grab your weapon. I hope we got this. I hope we make it out alive. That's not, that's not his speech. He reminds his army what they're up against, and he challenges them to fight the enemy with all the strength that they can gather. And what we don't often see is the quiet putting on of the armor or the taking up of the weaponry before they gather to that battle line. But it's there, and it's here as well. This morning we could call Ephesians 6, at least the, the last part of Ephesians 6, Paul's epic battle scene speech. He's rallying the troops. And as, as Paul begins to close his letter, he's telling the Ephesians to stand their ground, to stand firm against the attacks of the enemy. That's what this final section is all about. It's a call to arms. We could say it's a battle plan for the new community of God's people. So number one, I want us to see first uh, the call to stand firm. Stand firm in the King. To stand firm in King Jesus is point number one. Stand firm in King Jesus. He says in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord, in, in your master, and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. He says, be strong in the Lord. This is a command that we're to obey, and yet it's the privilege of every believer. In the Lord is a common way of referring to our relationship with God made possible through our union with Jesus. So when he says, stand firm in the Lord, he's saying, listen, stand firm now, now that you have been united with Christ, stand in what you know is true. Hold on to these truths. He says, put on the full armor of God. He says it two times. And then there are these various forms of the verb stand. He mentions four times 
to stand, 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 which was a military term for holding on to a position. He wanted them to stand their ground, to hold their position. To stand in the Lord is, it's the high ground that we're standing on. It's the position, one for us, that we're to hold. It involves faith that God has made us new. It involves faith that God has made us his, and he has made us able to stand. God has made us new in Christ. He has made us his. We belong to him in Christ. And he's made us able to stand our ground against the enemy in Christ Jesus. The mighty power available to us in verse 10 is described earlier in the letter. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. He wanted them to know truly, to have an experiential knowledge of the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Can you think of a greater power? This power he's describing, there is no greater power. This is what we're to stand in. This is the strength. This is the mighty power available to you and I as we stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 11 begins to describe the armor. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand. The armor belongs to God. Put on the full armor of God. The armor belongs to God, but it's given to us. There is divine strength. There is divine protection that is given to us in this battle, in this war against our enemy. Take your stand against the devil's schemes is what he's saying. Jesus calls the devil the prince of this world and the father of lies. So when you think devil, think trickery, think deceit. Paul reminded the Corinthian church that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. That's in 1 Corinthians 11. Satan, the Satan, really, the accuser, the deceiver. He masquerades as an angel of light. It's important to know our enemy. People don't like to talk about Satan. They don't even like to mention the name Satan or the devil. But it's a topic that no one likes to talk about, something we might rather dismiss, actually. We have to be careful not to dismiss the devil as this red leotard-wearing, kind of horn-headed, pitchfork-carrying figure or cartoon. He's not harmless. Let's not ignore the fact that there is an enemy that Christians are up against, but also it's important to not become overly obsessed with the devil and to give him more power than he actually deserves in our minds. The devil is against you. He hates you. What does a scheme look like? Because this is what we're up against. This is what we're facing. We're to take our stand against the devil's scheme. So what what would a scheme look like? Well, as you look in Scripture, I, I think you can define scheme in a lot of different ways. We see the devil's schemes uh, unleashed on the church in, as Paul addresses various churches. I think of 2 Corinthians 2 where Paul addresses an issue of unforgiveness that the church had been dealing with. And, and, and Paul tells the Corinthians, don't let Satan outwit you. 
Don't let him outwit you in dealing with unforgiveness. Have you thought of the devil's schemes as being expressed through unforgiveness towards a brother or sister in Christ? What about anger? In Ephesians 4, um, Paul says, don't give the devil a foothold in your life. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. He's saying, reconcile with your brother or your sister quickly. I think of it this way. Listen, I got enough going against me. Uh, I don't want to give the devil a foothold. Whatever that looks like, I don't want to do it. So I want to make things right with my wife. I want to make things right with my brother in Christ. I want to, if, if there's anger, if there's unresolved conflict, we want to make things right. We're talking about the, the enemy's schemes. Unforgiveness, anger. What about bitter envy or selfish ambition? James chapter 3 talks about this. It's of the devil. Bitter envy, selfish ambition. These things are like a cancer. They can go undetected for years. Satan, or the Satan, is the accuser. He opposes you. He is your adversary. You're to stand your ground against him. Verse 12 is clear. This is a spiritual battle. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Sometimes it feels like it, though. But it's not. It's not against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms or in the unseen world. That's what our struggle is against. That's who our struggle is against. We wrestle, we fight a panic-stricken enemy, though. Why do I say that? You know, the thought that this message of Jesus, the King, who conquers our rebel hearts, who has died, paid the price for our sin, and raised to life, that message, the thought that that message and the message of Jesus is everywhere challenging our enemy's power and authority, it's a threat. It's a threat. And that communities like this one, like you, like Stonehouse, loyal to Jesus as Lord and King, showing evidence of the Lord's power at work in those who believe is something the enemy desperately wants to oppose. So the unity and the love that you show, the mission that you're on, is something the enemy desperately wants to oppose. So we need to be mindful of the enemy's schemes. We need to stand our ground against the enemy's schemes. How do we do this? How, I should say, will the enemy continue to push and oppose this work here? Well, he would try to bring in false teaching, immorality, division, pride, whatever it takes to break up what God is doing here. And we need to be mindful. We need to be standing firm against these things. You know, Paul could have said, put on truth, put on righteousness, readiness and faith, and take hold of the salvation that is found in the gospel, or put on Messiah, put on the Christ. And he does say that in other letters to other churches. We could see that in Romans 13. He, He talks that way. But his metaphor here in Ephesians is purposeful. He helps us learn how to apply gospel truths to our lives, and that's important. We can hear these words. We can hear the gospel week in and week out. We, we embrace the gospel. 
I mean, we believe the truth of who Jesus is. We've embraced that. We've come into this new community. But if we're not careful, we can go about our lives and not apply the gospel. Not really connect it to everyday living. And, and Paul's helping us to do that through this beautiful metaphor of this armor. It's a military metaphor. Most likely it's drawn from two places. First, the Roman soldiers surrounding him. Ephesus was a Roman city. The second, the prophet Isaiah's description of Yahweh, the divine warrior. And he, he gets this imagery in Isaiah. I, I want to show you some of that imagery. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. We'll flip around a little bit in Isaiah just for you to see Yahweh, the divine warrior, and where I think Paul draws his imagery from. Speaking of this, this one who would come uh, from the stump of Jesse, this branch, this Isaiah prophesies 700 years before Christ. He says in verse 4 of chapter 11, but the righteousness, but with righteousness, he, this, this coming Messiah, he will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. Okay, We've got some imagery of him wearing some of these things. All right, go with me now to Isaiah 59. Verse 17. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. Again, this is description of Yahweh's armor, the divine armor of God. Now turn with me to Isaiah 52. Verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. So again, there's this message of peace. This is proclamation. So all of this coming together, Paul takes passages about the Messiah, clothed with righteousness and faithfulness, striking the earth with his words, coming to announce the gospel of peace, and he's saying the armor that God provides is the armor that God himself wears. It actually represents God himself. In other words, he's saying we're to be clothed in him. You've probably heard that language before, to be clothed in Christ. Anything can become superstitious to us, though. We can treat this as a magical fix to a bad day. Oops, I didn't put on the armor of God today. Yeah, don't, don't do that. that. That's not what... You know, oh, had a bad day. That explains everything. I didn't put the armor on. You know, got to put that helmet on and the breastplate. I mean, if that helps you and you're standing in the mirror in the morning and, and my wife, she loves that kind of thing, you know. Uh, she's nodding her head saying, yes, this is completely fine to do, to pretend you're putting on the armor. Um, and, and if that helps you, then do it. But each, each piece of this armor describes a facet of what God has done for us in Christ. So let's look at each piece of the armor. The belt of truth in verse 14 you know, the soldier's belt held everything in place. The more the truth of who God is fills our hearts and our minds, the greater our resistance to the enemy's schemes will be. 
If our knowledge of God's character is unclear, if our knowledge of God's uh, character is vague, and our confidence, then our confidence in his strength will be unclear as well. We won't be confident if we have no knowledge of God. If it's vague, if, if we're not building our lives on the truth of who he is and what he does, uh, then we're going to have nothing to fight with. So many people create a God of their own imagination, a God of their own making. Instead of looking and leaning on the truth of who God is revealed in, in Holy Scripture. We can't do that. We've got to allow God's word to define who God is. Truth holds everything up. It holds everything together. Everything of importance is hanging on truth. We should be people of truth. We should be interested in what is true. The belt of truth. Then we see the breastplate of righteousness. The justice and the goodness of God. The reality that we are made right. When you think of this righteousness, this breastplate of righteousness, we are made right before him. We, we put it on when we celebrate the finished work of Jesus on the cross. How do you put it on? I mean, we're putting it on today as we're singing these songs. How do you put it on? We, we're going to put it on in a few minutes when we participate in communion and we remember that we stand not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus. This breastplate of righteousness that protects the vital organs. What happens when we don't do this? What happens when we, we don't put on this breastplate of righteousness? We can really begin to lean on our own feelings. Really stop believing what is true. That we stand in the righteousness of Christ. That we've been cleansed by his blood. We can start to try to add things to the finished work of Christ. And that's ridiculous because what can we add to the finished work of Jesus? The accuser's voice will grow louder when we don't put on the breastplate of righteousness. God doesn't love you. You ever hear that voice? Your commitment to your faith is pitiful. You ever hear that? How about, he's angry with you. How could you approach him today? Or, you messed up that way again? We've got to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And then there's feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, this announcement of peace, this good news of reconciliation between God and man, this good news that I'm at peace now with the living God. Feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. You know, ancient warfare was mainly fought hand-to-hand -hand combat. So the certainty of your footing was critical to taking a stand. If you're going to take a stand... I mean, your footing matters. How you're standing matters. And what's on your feet matters. And so soldiers, back in the day, had these shoes thickly just studded with sharp nails and gave soldiers an advantage over their enemy. They could stand their ground like these serious cleats. Peace with God, reconciliation with Him is the sure footing that we need to stand our ground. If we have forgotten that now there is peace between us and God, we will not stand our ground. But with that truth in our heads and affecting our hearts, that we've been reconciled to God, where we were once enemies, but now there's peace. What will that do? Oh, we can stand our ground in the midst of anything, in the midst of any storm. Whatever comes our way, I'm at peace with God. 
I've been reconciled. This broken relationship has been mended. How? Through the finished work of Jesus. I now stand in the righteousness of Christ, not in my own righteousness. And so I've been reconciled. Our identity as children of God is in Christ. I'm a child of God. Don't forget this. Stand in it. Stand your ground knowing that you're his child knowing that you, you're united with Christ. If you, by faith, have believed, have embraced Jesus as King of your life and Lord, these are, tr- these are things that are true of you and your relationship with God that you're to stand in. And we see the shield of faith. Well, the Roman shield would have been about four feet tall, would have been a, a wooden shield wrapped in leather, with metal on each end so it could actually interlock with the shields to its left and right. So not only did this provide protection, but it enabled the soldiers to push through what was in front of them. I love that imagery. They were able to lock their shield with, with their, their buds to their left and right and just push through the line as their feet were firmly planted and push through against the enemy's line and stand their ground. You don't have to face whatever you're facing. You don't have to walk through this life, this journey alone. We were never meant to. I mean, it's what church is about. Brothers and sisters together in love, walking together in the truth of who Jesus is, standing firm together. We're to do this together. We're not meant to be lone wolves. We'll get eaten alive. We can't fight this battle alone. So partner with others in prayer. Partner with others like you're doing here as you're committed to this local church. Together we're on mission. Together you're on mission here. You know, faith points us to the promises of Scripture. That's what it does. It points us to the promises of Scripture, but also to the one behind the promises, to his strength, to his faithfulness. Now, let me give you an example of that. The Lord told Abram, you remember the story in Genesis 15? He called Abram. This, this idol worshiper, he calls him out of his land and he calls him to himself. He reveals himself to Abram, changes his name to Abraham. And he says in Genesis 15, do not be af- afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Oh, I love that. Don't be af- afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. Yahweh is saying this. I am your shield. I'm your protection. I'm your all in all. Then in Romans 4, 18, uh, and, and then through verse 21, we hear about the kind of faith that Abraham actually exhibited. Paul describes it this way. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. I love that. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And the type of hope that Abraham had wasn't this, oh, I I hope this works out. It's not a wishful thinking. It's a certainty rooted in the one who has given him promises. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. That's what Abraham did. He was fully persuaded. It wasn't like, oh, I hope so. It was a certainty. Fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. That was Abraham's faith. Well, that's your faith as well, if you're trusting in Jesus today. Fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he's promised to do for you in Jesus. To redeem you fully. To cleanse you of your sin. To make you his. 
You're believing promises, promises that have been kept in Christ. God is greater than our fear and our doubt. He's greater than our anxieties. And we're going to wrestle with faith. But we're to look to Jesus and to see how in him God's promises have been met. God has the power to do what he promised to do for us through Jesus. Now, there are flaming arrows that will come at us. A flaming arrow was a common and effective weapon of ancient warfare. We see, we watched Jack the Giant Slayer. You ever see that? It's a good movie. My kids love it. There's flaming arrows all over that movie. It just reminds me of this passage. They're fighting giants, and they're, they're, they're shooting these guys with flaming arrows. But they were effective, but only so much. You've got to see the movie. But typically, there's this clump of fiber attached to an arrow, dipped in pitch, set on fire. The flaming arrows, though, of the evil one, they, what kind of form do they take? They might take the form of doubt. These arrows that come at us. They might take the form of despair or of difficult circumstances or of temptations, of lusts, of broken thoughts that seem to come out of nowhere. We lift the shield of faith, though. How do we do it? We lift the shield of faith by looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So Jesus, we are told in Hebrews, is both the author of our faith and the perfecter. So he's, he's perfecting, he's growing our faith. And so we lift that shield of faith by looking to the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. So when the, the flaming arrows of the evil one are coming at us, when the doubts and anxieties and the fears and the broken thoughts just, just start coming at us, we've got to raise that shield of faith. We've got to look to Jesus who goes before us, who has gone before us. All of us need to do this again and again. It's not like a one-time thing. Yeah, I lifted the shield of faith a few months ago. I'm good. Some of you need to lift it again for the first time in a long time. Have you let your guard down? Are you mindful of the enemy's schemes, of his hatred towards you? Are you mindful of the call to action? The responsibility that you have to lift the shield of faith. To take up the weaponry that's been provided. The protection that is there. It's in Christ. Beautiful metaphor. You know, I, I experienced this not long ago. Just having my guard down. It happens to all of us. I was struggling tremendously in my heart and my mind. Just laying in bed late at night. Everyone's asleep. That's when it usually hits me. Feeling beat up, I, I, I felt just despair rising in my heart. And the thought came to mind, got to raise up the shield of faith. So I tried. <laughs> How though? See, in that moment, I, I turned to what I knew was true of Jesus. In those moments, usually what's happening for me as a follower of Jesus, not as a pastor, is I'm just, I'm breaking my faith down to what's most important to who I am in Christ. And I'm reminding myself how I got there, that it's all of grace. I'm preaching that to myself because that's what I'm standing on in life and in death. It's Jesus. It's who he is. It's what he's done for me. I raised the shield of faith. I turned to Christ. In light of the circumstances, in the midst of sorrow and anxiety, I looked to Jesus. My heart was racing. It didn't fix everything in my life. 
but I knew he was present and I knew I was called to lift the shield of faith and I got to do it again and again and again and again sometimes I'll do it by picking up the guitar and singing a song sometimes I'll do it by opening the scriptures and and just following a well-worn path that I might have to favorite passages of scripture I encourage you to have well-worn paths to certain passages that will lift your heart, that will lift your eyes to Jesus. When you're like, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to read. I'm tired of reading numbers in my devotions. I'm not encouraged right now by Deuteronomy. Whatever. So, so where are you going to go? What chapter in Mark? What passage in Colossians? What verse in Ephesians is going to lift that shield of faith for you? Find it find them. I called out the flaming arrows for what they were. They were lies. Thoughts came into my mind. What kind of prayers are these? You call yourself a pastor? Pitiful. What kind of thoughts are these? How could you let these thoughts even enter your mind? I had to raise the shield of faith again. It was a battle. Helmet of salvation we see in verse 17. Believing you're his child. That he loves you is the ultimate form of protection. And we've been talking about that. If, but here's the, here's the flaming arrow. If you were really a Christian, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't say that. You wouldn't think that. The accuser, the deceiver, wants you to doubt, wants you to believe that this faith is not legit. Now, some of you might be overwhelmed by patterns of sin habits that you've struggled with for years it's hard to fight the good fight of faith when you feel so defeated isn't it you're like again i'm battling this again what do you need to do put on that helmet of salvation remind yourself who you are in christ jesus it didn't begin by you being good enough it won't be sustained by you being good enough lean on him fall on him Repent of your sin. Own up to the fact that you're not perfect. And you, you need to look to the one who is. The helmet of salvation. Rejoice in what is true of you in Christ Jesus. I want you to show me a sin that God can't overcome. Sometimes I believe that we can think in our minds, oh, this is just too big for God. I've been struggling with this for years. How, how, could, how, could, I, how could I not give myself to that? I've been giving myself to it for years, this addiction or whatever it is, whether it's, you know, whatever, pornography, alcohol, oh, anger issues. You're like, whoa, really? Is this going to define me? It might be something that you've got to fight the rest of your life in a fierce way, but don't stop fighting. Don't stop fighting. We see the sword of the Spirit next in verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know, throughout the Bible, the instrument through which God's power is made known is His spoken Word, the Word of God. In Matthew 4, we see this fight with Satan, between Jesus and Satan, and the temptation that comes. If, he says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God as if he wasn't. But if he wants to plant these seeds of doubt, even in Jesus, if you are the son of God, have you ever wrestled with whether or not you were a believer? If you're truly a believer, it's the same, it's the same thing. 
He's been doing this for centuries, the enemy. If you were, are the Son of God, he says two times to Jesus. And then he says, if you worship me, and what's Jesus' reply? It is written. It is written. He takes up the sword of the Spirit. He takes up the Word of God. It is written. How does he do battle with the deceiver, with the accuser, with the Word of God? In James 4, uh, verse 7, James says, Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In Acts 26, it's interesting, Paul is giving a, a testimony of, of what Jesus uh, did in his life, and, and he, says, uh, he uh, describes uh, Jesus saying this to him, I am sending you to them, to the Gentiles, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. I just think that's fascinating. Paul is being sent to proclaim the gospel to bring people from the power of Satan to God. And this is the work of the gospel. It's described in Colossians where uh, we, have been, we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. All through Jesus. So the first point, stand firm in King Jesus, is the longest point. The second is very short. Number two, every area of life dependent on King Jesus. It's essentially saying the same thing. He goes on to say, verse 18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Pray, 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 pray. Pray, pray. He says pray on all occasions. It's a lifestyle. It should be the knee-jerk reaction to uh, whatever circumstances are coming our way. Seriously. Good or bad. Ugly or beautiful. Is prayer that knee-jerk reaction to life circumstances? I want it to be more for me. Prayer is simply weakness expressed. And when we express our weakness to God, strength will be received. And nothing enables us to bear up under the weight and anxieties of our struggle against sin and all the schemes of the devil like prayer. It feels weak. It feels ineffective. We feel like, I can't, don't even have the words to say. And we're distracted, and we'll want to do everything but pray. But when we pray, nothing will enable us to bear up under the weight of these attacks like prayer. Now, are your times of prayer inconsistent? Do they feel awkward? It's okay happens to all of us but let's not keep it that way let's push through that you know there's two pitfalls that we can fall into one discouragement and we just get complacent and indifferent and we believe well this pattern of, of prayerlessness in my life will never change and so we're discouraged I've been there many many times but then the pendulum could swing in the other direction and we get arrogant like I got this you know I can just I'm, I'm getting through life victorious in Jesus, but where's, the, but where's the prayer? Where's the leaning on him? We want to avoid both of those pitfalls. We want to be dependent. If we decide to ignore prayer, then we not only despise an amazing gift and piece of weaponry, but we'll find the armor we have on is actually not the armor of God. The armor is only complete when we're leaning on him in prayer. The armor of God is put on only when in prayerful dependence we look to God's strength and protection. 
We are up against far more than we can handle on our own. Don't kid yourself. You can't handle what you're up against alone. You and I are in a war. Do you see the battle you're engaged in? Do you know the enemy that you're fighting? Do you know the weapons you're called to pick up? I love the request he makes in verse 19 and 20. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Really, Paul? Haven't you been doing that? Haven't you been an example in that for everybody? Apparently, he felt weak. Isn't that cool? He felt weak in the area that we see strength. God is so good. He's so glorified in that. He's asking for prayer. Paul wants to make clear the extraordinary saving plan of God's grace. What a great example of something we should be praying for ourselves, for this church. And then it ends in verse 24. I mean, he's sending Tychicus and all the, you know, he wants to tell him about what's going on in his life. But then it ends in verse 24. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. I think this is a a beautiful word of encouragement to end the letter with. It captures the heart of the letter. He's saying, basically, grace to all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with a love that never dies. I, I want that. And we should want that as a church. A love for the Lord Jesus Christ that never dies. An undying love. Another sweet uh, prayer that we could adopt as our own. God, give me this undying love for you that's expressed in so many ways. Well, we had this epic battle scene speech just laid out for us. Closing of a letter to a people that he loved. And that he was concerned would fight a particular way. Well, church, now you've received that speech. Yeah, through Paul, but from God himself. And he gives you his own divine protection to stand in. Will you stand? The responsibility is given to you to stand. Will you stand? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this letter. Thank you for the encouragement that comes from it. Thank you for the, the instruction and the grace that comes from it. We thank you, Lord, for the, the beautiful application of the gospel as we consider this metaphor of the armor and how we're to put it on and live in it and apply it to our lives. Help us to do just that. And help all of us to grow in dependence on you in prayer. That we would understand that we're up against an enemy We're we're battling against schemes and tricks of the accuser. But we're called, Lord, to pray. And as we lean on you, as we look to the strength that you provide, as we call out to you and pray, Father, you're going to give us the divine strength that we need to stand our ground. We're confident in that. You've saved us. You will equip us with the strength to continue on. So fill us with faith as we leave today. Fill us with gratitude that what we've received is a gift from your hand and it's equipping grace. You've not left us just to try to figure out this life on our own. You're equipping us. So thank you for that. We give you praise for it. Amen.